All right. Well, GRX, this is kind of a new look for us. This is kind of an outdoor look. Um, I want to say that I uh, appreciate people's flexibility for this morning. We uh, had heard from King's Academy that some construction was going to happen at some point, at some time during the summer. And uh, we found out uh, emails on uh, Friday night that uh, the construction, which we thought was going to be off for a, a week or two more, actually had already begun. So when you, when you see some of the folks, like um, I know some of the guys in RAD, some of the other small groups that were here early setting up, Terrence was here early, I mean, all this stuff. We have a great staff at GRX. We have some great people at GRX, some volunteers coming out here. And then I appreciate everybody here, your flexibility, because this is new for us. One thing I want to give a heads up to, we try to communicate changes like this and with as much uh, notice as possible. Uh, and so if you're not yet a part of X-Flash, which is one of our major uh, communication vehicles here at GRX, I encourage you to fill out this comm card and uh, just say that you want to get joined on to X-Flash. Um, but we're going to be trying to communicate where we will be uh, next week. Um, but just to give folks a heads up, I am 90% sure that we're going to be in the theater. We're going to be in the theater. Um, we did try to uh, see what it did sound like at the W Room this morning. Um, the big digger out front, that actually wasn't making much noise. But when they turned on the big saw to start cutting through the concrete, that put out a lot of noise. So then the decision was to come out here. But whether we're inside or whether we're outside, we can come together as the community of faith to worship God and to stand under Scripture and to learn more and more about what it means to be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do today. That's what we're going to do. We're going to stand before Scripture. We're going to sit in the shade before Scripture. And we're going to learn. We're going to look and see what God has to say to us, how we can grow in our discipleship, how we can grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If you've been with us now, in the last two weeks, we have been looking at this idea, this topic, this series called Love. And we're in summer. So this series is called The Summer of Love. The series today, we're going to look at stuff that might mess with us a little bit. It's going to call us to, be, to grow in deeper depth with our Christianity, with our faith, and what it means to love. And so I invite you to kind of open up the scripture with us. We are going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to look at a few verses there. Now, if you were here with us last week, we talked about love and the agape love that God has for us. It's this love that moves from God towards others. It's the kind of a love that's a gracious love. It's a love that's marked by intention. It's a love that has movement. It's a love that moves from God to us. And it's a love that God gives us for then us to love other people. Now, one of the dangers, one of the pitfalls when we talk about love, and especially within a Christian church, is people are like, oh man, I've been a Christian for a while. I got that. I know that. Like, I can understand this at sort of a cognitive level, at sort of a theological level. People that follow Jesus are supposed to be a people that are about love. I've got that. But one of the dangers 
or one of the pitfalls for us is that we, when we say we got that, it means that we've got that up here. We've got that in our, in our minds. Yeah, I know that God loves me, and yeah, I know I'm supposed to love other people. But if it just remains up here, and it doesn't change our lives, it doesn't change how we behave, it doesn't change how we act, it doesn't change how we respond to other people, then all it does is just spin around up here. And so today what we're going to look at is we're going to actually look at the nuts and bolts. What does Scripture tell us about how we actually are to love one another? And I pray that as we talk and as we look and as we unfold this passage, that not just your head would be stirred, but that your heart would be stirred, that your relationships would be stirred, that you'd be thinking all along, who can I love in this way? And how can I love people in this way? And this is where we're going. Who can I love? How can I love people in this way? And the way we're going to get there is we're going to tackle these three things. We're going to talk about how real love is practical. It's not just cognitive, but real love is practical. It actually gets lived out. We're going to see how we live that out in 1 Corinthians. Real love is actually challenging. If you're going to really love somebody, and you're going to love somebody in the way that Scripture calls us to, it actually calls us to be really different than how we are, than how we naturally are. And real love challenges us. Real love is practical. It really challenges us. And then when we really love someone, it humanizes. It humanizes us and it humanizes the other person. And that's going to all bring us to the questions of who and how are we loving? Who and how are we loving? So if you've got your Bible with us, if you've got your device, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to just take verses 4 through 7. Perhaps you've heard this passage before, read. It's actually a passage that is written by the Apostle Paul for the church in Corinth, for the community. It's actually a a passage written for a church community, a church community like us, like at GRX, and it calls the Corinthian church, who there was struggling with different issues of power and different issues of privilege and different issues of economic separation, different issues of class separation, it was actually calling them into a practical way to love each other. Not just, oh yeah, we're in the church, we're supposed to love each other because God loves us. A very practical way of how people that you're sitting next to on Sunday in worship, this is how you're supposed to love them. So think about people and loving people in this way as we read this passage. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he writes this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Can you hear this? Can you hear this beginning in the church context? Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that's separated by power, by economics, and he's saying, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love doesn't envy someone else or their other position, what they have. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. How we treat one another. Love does not have any space for being rude. Love does not insist on its own way. 
It's not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a big list of words. It's easy to just let this list of words just kind of like pour over us and not have anything stick. So I'm going to go back a little bit and unpack this a little bit and show just how incredibly practical this is. And see in your own life if these, there are anchor points for you, there are hooks for you and saying, wow, for me to love this way would call me into a new level of practical love. This is a really earthy way to love people. It's a very basic way to love people. This is what he says. He says love is seven things, and he says love is not eight things. So just think about this in your own life. Maybe you reflect on this in your past week and say, hey, where was I? Where was I patient this week? And where was I kind this week? Where this week did I rejoice with the things that were true? Where this week was I asked to bear something for, the, for someone else? Or hope for something alongside someone else who was struggling with hopelessness? Where was I called this week to believe something? Or maybe this week, where was I called to endure something alongside someone else? See, the real danger with a passage like this is we hear it and all these words just sort of pass right over us. But if you had an opportunity to be patient this week or to turn away angry words and to use words that were kind to bear something because someone was going through a struggle or a difficulty. Someone calls you and wants your attention and you stop long enough to bear their story with them. That is the kind of love that he's talking about. The flip side is this. We all have shadow sides with us as well. We all have these sides of us that, man, ah, if we're honest with ourselves, I think this passage of Scripture is very convicting. If we're honest in our souls, I think this passage that Paul writes is very convicting. He gives us a list of eight things that love is not. And again, just as I reflect on this week, as I read through this list, I invite you to reflect on your week. Was there a time in this week where you might have struggled with envy? where you saw something that someone else had that you really wanted that. Because love is not envy. Love doesn't boast. Love's not arrogant. And love's not rude. Love's not rude. You know, it's interesting, this this one, love is not rude. You know, it kind of shows up in these different ways. And Maybe in your community or in your family or in your relationships, it shows up like this. Sometimes when we run into each other on Sunday, we kind of have our Sunday face on. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but we're just kind of nice to each other. We're just kind of really polite to each other. 
But sometimes I show, as I talk with people, sometimes rudeness in language shows up among people that we're actually closest to. People in our families, maybe with our spouses, maybe with our, our, our closest friends, maybe if we're dating, maybe with our boyfriend or a girlfriend. I mean, it's funny to me how this, this conversation, this Paul that gives us this word, it's very gritty, it's very earthy, it's very practical. Where this week was I loving in my words? Or where in this week was I rude with my words? Where I said something that just wasn't loving? It's incredibly challenging, this, this word from Scripture. And sometimes I know, I know for me, Sometimes it shows up in those relationships that I'm closest to. My language. How am I loving in my language? Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love lets somebody else have its own way. That is completely radical in our culture. In our society, in our culture, where everything is geared towards our own comfort, or our own pleasure, or our own satisfaction. Love does not insist on having its own way. Now, I'll just sort of give this example for you. Sometimes in churches, there are these things about worship and about worship music. And if you've ever been around a church and around different places and different communities— There are sometimes churches where they go, man, I want to worship God in a particular way. And they go, man, this, it's not about worshiping God as much as, man, do we have an organ? Or, man, do we have drums in our worship? Or, man, do we have choir robes in our choir? Or, man, are we singing the latest popular songs in our culture? And that's just one of the ways that in church culture, it can show up. Do we insist on having our own way? Or do we gather as the community to be able to worship God in the ways that our worship team draws us into worship? Insist on having our own way. Where this week have you released your own way to love somebody else. Love's not irritable. Love's not resentful. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. You know, in love and in the community of faith, sometimes in our life, there's this temptation to want to do the great thing. We want to do some kind of great thing for the kingdom. We want to do some kind of great thing for God. We want to do some kind of great thing for the city. We want to do some kind of great thing for the world, for the kingdom of God. But do you know what really shows the life of a disciple? It's when you can do the small things with great love. It's when you can do the small things with great love. It's when you're about to encounter somebody and you're about to feel really irritated with them and maybe really impatient with them. 
And because of the love that God has put into your life, and because of the love that God has called you to, God has called you to that, that God calls you to a love and a life that's filled with patience and with kindness. You're not called to do something great for the kingdom. You're called to do the small, everyday encounters that we have in great love. That's what we're called to do. That is the difference that we make for the kingdom every day. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It's not rude. doesn't insist on its own way. When you allow someone else and love someone else where they are, that is living into this practical, challenging love that's here. Now, I was trying to think of this thing. Practical love, we inconvenience ourselves for another. We don't insist on our own way. We sacrifice something as an act of love. We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice our preferences. We sacrifice our needs. And we sacrifice this idol within our culture to have things our own way. And when you do that, it's radical. It changes. It changes relationships. Now, love is not easy because we're so geared to look out for our own interests, to protect ourselves. But if we take the love that God calls us to seriously, it's not just that. But God calls us into an agape love that even calls us beyond loving just the people that are easy to love in our lives. Last week, we looked at the agape love of God and how it's seen in Jesus Christ that moves from God towards us and to other people. But it's the same God that calls us to love, as it says in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now go with me a little bit farther, because if we can love our neighbor, God calls us to actually into a more challenging form of love, where we actually love our enemies. Matthew 5, 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And the same word that's translated love here, the same word that we looked at last week, translated love, and the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 is this same love here in Matthew, the agape love. If we're called to practically love the people right around us, our neighbors who are easy to love, the greater challenge is for us to love our enemies those who we have a really tough time loving. I was trying to think about an example of this, an illustration of this, and what came to mind was actually the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And there was a time in this country where there was deep segregation in the 1960s, where whites and blacks were deeply segregated in education, 
and they were segregated in the busing, and they were particularly segregated in this one arena of American life called the lunch counter. And in some of your histories, you might have seen this, you might have seen pictures like this, but what was going on was that there were, in this time in the 60s, there were these places called lunch counters, and they were in department stores. They would be the equivalent now of fast food restaurants. In that time, they didn't have these fast food restaurants where you could just quick jump in and grab a bite to eat and then go out. But in the big department stores, like in Woolworths and in Sears, they would have these lunch counters where you could sit on a stool and you could sit up at the counter and just order something quick to eat and then go back to your work. These lunch counters were segregated. They were for whites only. Wow, it's not even politically correct to say whites now, right? You have to say Caucasians. They were for Caucasians only. And African Americans, blacks, were not allowed to go to these counters. Well, what happened was this. That there were some African Americans, there were some blacks that decided, we're going to protest these lunch counters. So if you're familiar with what happened in American history in the 1960s, you're familiar with this is what happened. What happened was that African Americans, blacks began to go to these department stores and they would sit at these counters. They would sit at the stools and essentially wait to be served. While they waited to be served, the waitresses began to ignore them. And then what happened was that people around them began to jeer at them. People began to abuse them verbally. As African Americans and other whites, other Caucasians who were sympathetic with their cause, would sit at these counters in protest, in silent protest, looking to be served, people began to heap all kinds of verbal abuse on them, all kinds of physical abuse on them. Now, it wasn't just in one place where these um, sit-ins, these lunch counter sit-ins began to take place. It started in Greensboro, North Carolina in the 1960s. But then they began to spread all throughout North Carolina. They began to show up in department stores in Raleigh and in Winston-Salem and in Charlotte. More and more of these sit-ins began to take place. And what happened was a number of things. First of all, lunch counters began to get closed down. They were closed down for the good of public safety because they started to get more and more violent. People were not only heaping verbal abuse on the protesters, people were beginning to heap physical abuse on them. People would take cream and sugars and open them up and pour them on the heads of the protesters that were sitting there. They would take the ketchup that was there and the mustard that was there and pour it all over the protesters to try to move them out of those seats. And those protesters endured it. They didn't retaliate with violence. They didn't retaliate verbally. They sat and they endured 
and they bore all of that abuse. So how were they able to do that? How were these protesters in the civil rights movement able to sit there and endure all of that punishment? They were able to endure it because they were trained in love. They were trained in love. What happened in preparation for all of these protests was that all of the people who were going to sit at those lunch counters, they just didn't come off the street. They were prepared. They were trained. They had practiced what it meant to be loving and to not retaliate, to not be arrogant, to not be rude, but to endure and to bear it. And this is what happened. This is how these protesters were trained. Before they ever went to a lunch counter, what happened was there were these set up, these practiced lunch counters where they would go, African-Americans go, Caucasians would go who were sympathetic to the cause, and people who were going to go into these lunch counters, they would go there for the training, and they would sit down in these chairs, and behind them, Caucasians, whites who loved them, who were sympathetic to the cause, would come up behind them, and they would enact the abuse that they would experience. In practice, what they did was they unscrewed the sugar container and poured it on their heads. They opened the milk containers and they poured it all over them. They poured ketchup and mustard all over them in these practice sessions. They were completely covered. They heaped all kinds of verbal abuses on them and said all kinds of things that were rude and unkind and mean and hateful. And then when they did all of that, they finished. And then they would come up behind people that endured all this hostility and they would wrap their arms around them and they would say, I love you. I love you. They were trained in love. They were trained in love so that when it was time for them to go out into the real world, They were able to endure because they knew that they were loved. They knew, not just cognitively, not just in their head, they knew in their souls, in their hearts, that they were enveloped and surrounded and wrapped in love. And so then they were able to endure. They were able to endure. They were able to bear it. Real love is practical. Real love, when we're called to do it, challenges us. But what it also does is it humanizes us. In the practice sessions, after all that abuse happened, when arms went around one another and they said, I love you, it affirms the humanity that we all share. When we express that kind of love with one another, when we express the deep kind of love that risks ourselves 
and risks intimacy and risks sacrifice and risks care with one another, that real kind of love affirms our humanity and it affirms God in us. We are created in the image of God and God is love, agape love. And when we love one another in that way, we affirm the image of God that God has created in us. We affirm the love that God has placed in us and affirm the love that God has given us to love other people. So real love is practical. Real love is challenging. Real love humanizes who we are. And so I'm going to end the message with where I started, the questions of who and how. Who and how. Keep love real. Don't let it be an abstraction in your mind. Keep it real in your hearts, in your lives. Who and how. Who in your life has God called you to? Who in your life, who in your week, who are you going to see today, tomorrow, Tuesday, that God has placed in your life for you to wrap your arms around and say, I love you? Who in your life has God given you to do that? And then the second question is how? Who and how? How are you going to love them? How are you going to love them? Are you going to wrap your arms around them? Are you going to love them with patience? Are you going to love them with kindness? Are you going to rejoice with them in the truth that is their life? Is God calling you to bear something alongside them? Not to fix something in their life, but to come alongside and bear something with them, to believe something with them, to hope something for them, or to endure something with them. Who and how? Keep your love real. Keep it real. Keep your faith real. And by this, the world will know that we are followers of Jesus Christ as we love one another. Let's pray together.